0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Brent B. Shore, founder of Adventures. Brent, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Eric, for having me on. So, so Brent, as an introduction for some of the people who, who may not be familiar, one of the things you, uh, you've identified with is, is the forest gump of private equity. <laughs> <laughs> why, why don't you explain a little bit what you mean by that? And more so just, uh, why don't you explain sort of, when you look at your career, what sort of threads it together? What's, what's the common thread underneath it?
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of slow and, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I guess I, I, grew up in Joplin, Missouri, which is, uh, I guess close enough to the South to be the, 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 Forrest Gump of private equity. Yeah, no, I, I, I took a very winding career into private equity. In fact, um, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, what I'd be doing, you know, even almost five years ago, what I'd be doing, I mean, what we consider, so what we do is we, we're a family of companies and we acquire family owned companies, uh, and help help them, uh, give them a good long-term home for the business, help them, uh, maybe with some, some talents and some level of expertise that they typically don't have access to. Um, but I mean, fundamentally, we're operators, right? So it, it's, it's interesting, you know, technically what we do is we buy stakes in private companies, which is private equity, right? Um, but when you think of private equity, you think of the LBO model, the leverage buyout, the sort of KKR model, um, and we're just like about the inverse of that. So whereas traditional private equity, um, you know, we, <laughs> we kind of joke that it's, you know, buy, uh, strip it, lever it and flip it, right? Is kind of the, the, what they do. We are buying with no intention of ever selling the business. Um, we are using typically no debt in our transactions and we like to keep the leadership team in place. And in fact, if we don't like the leadership team, why in the world would we get involved with the business? So in many ways, we're, we're the opposite. In fact, one, uh, endowment called us a uh, very direct the opposite of private equity, and uh, I took it as a compliment. And they were like, "That's not a that's not a compliment." And I was like, "Oh, great." Um, so, uh, so anyway, so it started off uh, being an entrepreneur, and then uh, accidentally bought a business about ten years ago. Uh, did well with that, and and I mean, I don't know. As an entrepreneur, you you just do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Yeah. And so for us, we saw this um, just big opportunity that there was going to be this transition so we're amongst right now the largest intergenerational transfer of private businesses in the history of the world um, most of the businesses that make considerable amounts of money um, so you know kind of above a million dollars two million dollars a year of income they're owned by baby boomers I mean the vast majority of them and the vast majority of those don't have an exit strategy there's not a son or a daughter or a right. leadership team can't buy them out and so uh, what are the what happens to these businesses I think it's actually uh, quite uh, you know an existential crisis that's that's getting ready to happen and so uh, we're able to help step 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 in. You know, we try to pay a fair price and and treat people really
0: well. Yeah. Um, is, Is that what's mostly leading to the transfer, the demographics?
1: It's almost all demographics right now. I mean, there's always been a market for, um, you know, some at some point you have to sell, like no one lives forever. All businesses either, you know, are sold, uh, somehow passed down or shut down. I mean, those are really the three options. And so, yeah, we try to offer a very different product. If you want to think about it that way, um, in the, in that realm.
0: Yeah. Does an angel list for, for private equity or that type of, uh, type of transfer exist or? Or is it an online marketplace wouldn't work in that way?
1: Yeah. Well, so it's really actually interesting you bring that up. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of Angelus. In fact, uh, I, I was one of the first people to, to back, uh, some of the syndicates on there. And, uh, I love the model. In fact, when that model came out, I was thinking to myself exactly what you just thought The the, the issue is compared to startups. Um, all startups want to be known, right? So there's, there's not this information asymmetry that you find in the private markets. Um, when you're selling a private company, you don't want to be known. It's like, it's like a very secretive thing. You don't want to tell your employees until it's final. You don't want it to get them out amongst your vendors or your clients for fear that they'll, you know, abandon you. Um, and so it, it's a very closed process versus the startup environment's a very open process from a, like a capital structure standpoint. The other thing is that startups, you, you know, the, what makes it so interesting is that model being able to lead around yeah. and you want a lot of people to kind of come in and kind of be with you in that round. Right. Whereas in, in private equity you, you kind of want to take the biggest bite you possibly can and have it be worthwhile so you're not going to like aggregate the same type of dollars behind it now you could maybe do it um it would be interesting. I mean, the fundless yeah. sponsor model probably is the closest to that, yeah. um, which is, you know, let's say uh, you and I decided we want to start a private equity firm today, right? Yeah. We pick a, I don't know, a street name and a river. We combine them. Now we've got a private equity firm, right? Um, we throw up a Squarespace site, and um, now we're out. We can bid on anything we want. And basically, whenever we land a deal, what we want to do is we're, we're basically doing three deals at one time. We're going to do right. a deal with the seller, a deal with a debt provider, and a deal with the equity providers. Yeah. And so if you look at it from that standpoint, I mean, some sort of marketplace... At least if it was anonymized enough, yeah. I, I think it could work. It, it would just it, – it runs into a lot of unusual hurdles that you wouldn't expect coming from the startup world. And I think ultimately um, it, it's a level of complexity that I, I haven't seen anybody addressing it well. I mean Axial, uh, which we, by the way, we've been partners on Axial uh, for a while. They've kind of tried to do this. And, um, you know, I think they've done a really good job of aggregating a lot of market demand, but it's just really hard based on the visibility of it to get any traction.
0: So, so we're, we're here sitting in, uh, in our office in Silicon Valley and I'm curious sort of to go down a few different paths. One is, uh, what Silicon Valley doesn't really get or understand or appreciate about private equity. That's one. Two is how you view venture as a, as an asset class compared to, to private equity. And then three, why you're in private equity and not venture? <laughs> uh, so whichever one you well,
1: want to take first. I was going to say maybe we could start with the, the the last one first. Um, so so I went through a uh, a romance with with early stage companies. In fact, um gosh, this is probably eight or or nine years ago. Yeah. Well, so, so how I invested in Zapier is interesting. So I've known those guys since college. They're awesome. Just awesome human beings, um, from Columbia, Missouri. And that's where I live. And, um, and so, uh, myself and another guy were the first guys to bring startup Weekend to, uh, to Columbia. And and this is back when we were by far the smallest, uh, uh, city in the world to have a startup weekend. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Brandt, uh, had gone on a, I think it was a trail ride or something with Mark Nager. And so he came back and he was like, Hey, there's this really interesting, model. I was like, absolutely. I've heard about it. Um, he's like, well, what do you think? You know, want to partner up and and try to bring it to town. And I was like, sure. And then we asked them and they were like, no, absolutely not. And so he had to like petition, I think Mark, like directly to get us to to be able to host it. And it's actually turned into one of the best startup weekends in the world. So two Y Combinator companies, Zapier and Equipment Chair, um, both have come out of there. Um, and, uh, it's been, it's been incredibly value creative. So I had this romance with, uh, with, with early stage. Um, I think it's like anything else. You reach a point where, you know, enough and you knew enough of the people that I knew I, was going to be the best in the world at that. Um, I just knew that there was people in far better position geography that had far better, stronger networks. Um, I love Missouri. I love being in the Midwest. Um, I don't want to live in Silicon Valley. No offense to you guys. I think it's awesome. I love visiting. Um, I also love visiting New York and I also love visiting Chicago and Dallas. And so, um, I I knew being from Missouri, it was not going to, um, be a hotbed of, of, I mean, you could certainly, there are firms that have popped up since, but you know, in terms of being the best in the world, we're going to be able to do it. So uh, what I love about venture is uh, you're basically enabling creativity, right? Which in our businesses, I mean, private equity sort of gets a bum rap for um, basically being the vampires of of the, the investment world. I mean, they kind of come in, suck all the blood out, and then leave the husk, right? Uh, and I think that's sometimes fair, uh, oftentimes not. And uh, one of the favorite things we love to do is get creative in the portfolio. Like, you know, how can we create opportunities? How can we think about things that no one else is doing? Um, so I, I think there's more of that going on in private equity than you'd probably imagine. But kind of on the inverse of that, uh, you know, in terms of like, VC as an asset class, I mean, I, I think it's been, obviously, the power laws have really kicked in. I mean, if you're, you know, in the top VC funds, um, you've done incredibly well, yeah. right? And uh, if you haven't, it's, it's a hard game. I mean, I would say the um, standard deviation of outcomes in private equity are more, more narrow on the upside yeah. and downside, um, which is kind of, it's a safer, uh, it's probably a safer bet as an investor to go down that path. Um, at the same time, it's also getting incredibly crowded. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that that we try to avoid the crowds and kind of do something a little bit different. But, um, if you're just doing a, you know, middle market buyout fund, that's, you know, mostly just financial engineering, you, you kind of go anywhere, do anything. It's really tough sledding right now. I mean, yeah. um, it's, it's not a, not a good environment, um, to try to, to, try to make a living.
0: Yeah, totally. So if, if I had to say sort of what village global believes about the world, that's different than other venture firms, a couple of things I might think are that we think broad portfolios, can have better returns, uh, and, um, might actually be better for founders than, than, uh, smaller portfolios because you have this network of other founders and you have network effect like, like YC does, for example. That's one thing we might believe. And then we also might believe, or we would say that, you know, founders can make great investors. And so we empower them and with capital. What would you say? Because you have a sort of a, a different kind of private equity firm are the core beliefs that you differ from, from your private equity peers.
1: Yeah. So I would say that being operators and not sort of financial engineers, we just come at it from a completely different perspective. I mean, we get crap all the time that that we don't uh, put debt on these companies. They're like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why in the world would you not put debt, right? Because if things go well, um, you put debt on something, the, the returns are going to be higher for the equity, right? Yep. It's not complicated. Debt's an amplifier. It's not a source of returns. It's just an amplifier, an amplifier of returns. And so um, for us though, it kind of comes down to how do families make money? Um, families make money by um, being good operators and not being by financial engineering, right? And so um, we think that that's a, a really smart long-term strategy. And I think that's again our capital is so unusual. We you know we lock up our capital for 27 years, which is just unheard of in the in the private equity world. And uh, in fact, it's so unheard of that uh, when uh, when we talk to some prospective LPs, they literally can't understand. They're like, "Oh, they're, there's off ramps at like year five and year 10." We're like, nope, "No, no off ramps." No checkoffs, like it's 27 years, um, and there's even an option to renew for another 25
0: years at year 25. And so, so why, why would LPs get behind that?
1: Um, well, so so LPs get behind it because it offers us the ability to offer a, a completely different product, right? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, why is private equity treated differently than any other business, right? Uh, every other business, you're trying to create a better product to serve your customers in a better way, and the value is going to accrue to the people who can do that. Um, I think in private equity, for some reason, it's, it's almost the inverse, where it's like the, the the companies, the deals are supposed to serve the private equity firm instead of the private equity firm serving the customers. And so what we look at as we're completely focused on um our customers, which we believe are sellers and leadership teams. And so we tell our investors, you're not our customer. We're not optimized for you. Now, if if our true customers, our sellers and leadership teams win, they're gonna win really, really big and we're gonna win, right? And so everyone wins as long as they win. No one wins if they don't win. And so I don't understand why you wouldn't be more focused on them. And so um in terms of things that we believe, we believe that Financial engineering, uh, while the capital stack's important, um, we believe it should enable creativity, it should enable flexibility, and um, really optionality long term. And, and what that really looks like is if you if you got a huge debt load on a company, where do you think cash flow has to go? Well, it has to go down to paying off the debt. I mean, it's not complicated. So if you have, let's say, you know, a business is cash flowing $10 million, right? And you have $50 million of debt on it. Well, almost all that free cash flow is going to be going to pay down that $50 million debt. Whereas in a business that doesn't have that debt on it, well, now you've got optionality. You, you can distribute out the cash to the investors, um, which we do biannually. Or uh, we look for high return, high probability opportunities to, to deploy it back into the portfolio. Um, I mean, for obvious tax reasons, um, it's really advantageous. Um, and it, you know if you've got operators that you know it's kind of a virtuous cycle that's created the more investment back in the portfolio, the more employees are excited about what's going on, um, the more you can break new ground, the more you can see new opportunities that no one else sees, the more you become a magnet for those things and so it's really a virtuous cycle and so you know long term, what we like to see is just a, a good solid uh, compounding both within talent uh, opportunities within these companies, and the only way you can do that is if you organize your capital structure for the long term, which Basically, no one in private equity
0: does. Right. It's it's really interesting that you you focus on the customer being the you know not not the investor but the leadership teams, you know because in venture there's sort of this question of is the LP the customer or is the, is the founder the customer and I think. In practice for, for many, the LP is a customer because they h- hold the capital. And so the tail sort of wags the dog in terms of you needing a strategy that, that aligns with what they're looking for. And basically, you know, right. There's all this talk of founders and VCs being misaligned because, you know, VCs need unicorns. They have portfolio founders not having, you know, diversity portfolio and thus needing to, to go bigger or not. But I actually think that might be driven more by LPs because. LPs need the VCs to also go big themselves, uh, because LPs diversify, everyone is diversifying upon someone else's concentrated strategy. And so interesting to hear that you're thinking about that at private equity as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that it, it plagues, um, virtually, uh, every area of finance is this just complete misalignment between the capital and the objective. And, um, I understand why LPs do it that way, right? I mean, we had one, we had one LP, uh, perspective LP that said, um, 27 years, like, in 27 years, you're going to be on your fourth marriage, you're going to have stepkids, you're going to be, like, splitting your time between your vacation homes, and I'll be dead, <laughs> right? And so, like, no, I'm not going to invest in you, right? And when he said that, like, I can't fundamentally – that's your viewpoint of the world. Like, I fundamentally can't argue with that. Now, i I, I hope none of that comes true, right? And – But it's the exact same thing. Why do, why do PE people or VCs or whoever it is in the finance world act the way they do? Because they're incentivized to do that. If you're an LP and you're giving, you know, money to somebody that's hogtied with all kinds of perverse incentives, what do you think they're going to do? Are they going to be like, well, you incentivize me to go and gather more capital, but no, I'm going to keep my funds small. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So why do you keep creeping up in private equity world? I joke that our best competitors leave our segment of the market because if you're really good, you don't stay buying smaller companies. You get a bigger and bigger fund. You go up market, you raise more capital, you have more fees, you do bigger deals. Like it's just a natural progression. So it's actually beautiful for us because literally our competition leaves. Yeah.
0: And do you think that, you know, five years out, 10 years out, we're back. We're doing another edition of this podcast, the LP ecosystem or at least the, you know, um, the sort of incentives here will be similarly misaligned or is there some major change that, that could happen that would.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So we're seeing in conversations we've had, we are seeing a softening to alternative structures. I think the challenge is it's going to be, it's going to be much more s- slowly to take shape than I initially had thought. And it's really just driven by career risk, right? I mean, it, if, if, <laughs> If you're an LP and you're incentivized based on how well your portfolio does – private equity and traditional private equity is basically the surest bet you can get into at least widely considered to be the surest bet you can get into to drive your returns. So everyone wants to pile more money right now into private equity and they're doing it under the same two and 20 structure or something you know very similar to that. That's always been done because it just reduces friction. Like it's yeah. just something you don't have to think about. So really, um, I had, I had one, uh, prospective LP say to me, um, yeah, look, I, I didn't really even need to review any of your materials and I didn't to be completely frank. And I'm like, okay, Um, and he said, but it really doesn't matter because all you people do the same thing. You go after the same businesses in the same way. And so just tell me what your, what your team's like, and that'll be the differentiator. And I was like, I mean, look, I think our team's amazing and differentiated, but like there's a lot about our business that's completely different. And I think that's very novel, right? So the fact that we're inbound only on our deal flow, right? Very, very unusual. We, we, we joke that we're the the only direct-to-consumer private equity brand in the world, right? Um, if you ask most people who Carlisle is, they're like, I don't know, don't they make clothing or something? You know, like they, they have no idea, right? Um, Carlisle is like a mega, mega, mega multi-billion, tens of billions of dollars of capital, right? People have no idea because there's no consumer-facing effort at all on that side. You you know, when it comes to our fee structure, we do no, you know, <laughs> we take no fees of any kind, no reimbursements of any kind, and we split the free cash flow above a hurdle. Well, you know, our joke to, to LPs is, if you can buy beer with it, we charge for it, right? And so, um, there's a lot of things that we're doing very differently, but, but the, the sort of cynical, and, and to be honest, the the appropriate thing is that guy when he told me that is ninety nine point nine percent of the time he's absolutely right. Um, so where's the change going to come from? I think it's going to come from the people that don't have career risk, that aren't worried about you know sort of making the next thing look good for their careers. And um, there will be a slow over time change,
0: but for the foreseeable future, I don't see it happening fast. Yeah. And how about the intersection between venture and private equity? Start to see much more growth capital. How, how do you think that that plays out? And how do they you know venture and private equity interweave? Or- or or in fact become more distinct and, and disparate.
1: Yeah, I would say to me, it's kind of like there's two separate paths. One is what I would call a broken VC process, right, which can kind of lead into more private equity style investments. Or is it just follow-on capital that's getting sort of more and more necessary based on the the, just the size, right? I think you're seeing a lot of VC firms kind of butting up against in their larger sort of series D, E, pre-IPO type type funds uh, bumping up against private equity um, that have historically been the capital providers kind of in that segment. Um, but I think there is actually a completely different sort of broken VC path, if you want to call it that. Or you may I wouldn't say broken VC path. Maybe it's a uh, people who never took on uh, VC in the first place who could have. Um that then they get to a point where the business matures, it's kind of topped out. When I, mean, I say topped out, it can still grow 10, 20% per year. But as you know, if if you're not growing way, way quicker than that, it's not really a venture sort of Fits the eye of most venture investors. So I would say those are kind of the two, um, you know, where they, where they merge is ultimately, um, different businesses need capital differently at different times. And there should be a rich ecosystem of capital providers that offer just different things. I mean, one of the things that, that, that drives me crazy is, you know, politically right now, private equity is like the whipping boy of, of, you know, anybody populist left or right, right? I'm not trying to call out one, one in the spectrum. And, and, like, by the way, that's, that's very logical, right? It's big bad private equity. It's Wall Street. Right. It's a bunch of fat cats. Yeah. And, um, you know, they make a bunch of money and they've been responsible for very, like, visible failures, right? My argument is that sellers, I mean, somebody sold that business to private equity. Yeah. It's not like sellers don't understand right. what they're selling into. Yeah. Like, the docs are very clear what debt's being put on the business. Yeah. The strategy's clear before you close. It's not like they walk in and they're like, guys, I'm ready to operate this business for the next 30 years. And they're like, well, actually, we're going to, you know, lever you, strip you and flip you right? It's like, well, of course that's what to be expected. And in exchange, that seller is getting a gigantic check at close, right? But it's like this, "Oh my, how, how dare they? I had no idea this was going to go on." And like, look, look <laughs> there are plenty of extractive owners of businesses out there. And there's plenty of wonderful owners of businesses. And I think that same thing in private equity. I know people who are fantastic owners in a private equity structure, separate from adventures, and they do a great job and they're honorable people and they try to treat people really well. So there's like always the spectrum. And I think that ultimately a a good ecosystem, whether it's kind of the blend of VC up to PE is there's a lot of things that we can learn from each other. In fact, my meeting earlier today here in in, in the Valley um, was about that very thing. It's a, it's a gentleman who's uh, at one of the top VC firms in the world here in the valley, who is really interested in bringing kind of almost a tech transfer to private equity, and so he reached out to me and said, "Hey, what do you think about trying to you know partner on some of the portfolio trying to look at this and i mean we 're all open to it I think that 'd be fantastic like we want these businesses to blossom and I think there 's a lot that the the two groups can learn from one another in how to structure the capital as well as
0: what to do with it post close. Yeah, just to take the or round two as a framing for the next, you know five years from now, ten years from now, are there other fundamental changes to the asset class private equity that you expect to happen either to the asset class itself or to how it's perceived?
1: Yeah. Well, so I think there's, there's been a big influx of private equity tourism is how I would almost describe it. I mean, I think this is anytime you get late in a cycle, which by the way, no one knows how late we really are in the cycle. I mean, what Australia's in, it's like 29th year right now of expansion. So, you know, when you start screwing with monetary policy, the way we have, I don't think anybody knows what the future holds, but you know, it's certainly is showing signs in some ways of being late stage in the sense that, Hey, a bunch of money has been made. People are attracted to those returns. You know, if you get into the private equity business and you can raise some capital and you can put it to, work, you get paid well to do it, right? Like no bones about it. Um, and so it, there's a lot of tourism that's going on from what I would say uh, search funds, fundless sponsors, uh, family offices are trying to quote unquote get operational. And it, it's interesting because they usually close one deal and then get stuck, right? Um, even if the business goes well, I mean, these businesses that we're involved in require a tremendous amount of involvement. and um, These things don't quote unquote run themselves. Now we have Great leadership teams. They're fantastic. They do a great job, but like they're hard businesses. I mean, operating a business, as you know, I mean, preaching the choir here, it's hard. I mean, it is a messy, messy world, messy people. Um, and the businesses are just collections of these messy people. And so, um, I would say over the next five, 10 years, at some point there's going to be a washing out where, you know, you just can't run around as a deal guy and try to get deals done and get any traction. Whereas right now, I mean, there are people who are getting stuff done that I had, I frankly, it it blows my mind. They're getting it done.
0: Yeah. And in a, in a downturn, what happens to the, to the asset class? Is it the winners keep on winning and there's a whole lot of losers or? Well, it's actually really interesting.
1: Uh, so the debt provides the biggest challenge. I mean, so if you look at, um, you know, most of these businesses, at least immediately post close, are levered at least four or five times on, uh, on their earnings, uh, or not even their earnings on their EBITDA. And I mean, you're starting to see larger deals get six, seven, and with MES, like eight, potentially even nine times. Right. Um, and so there's a very small amount of equity going in and a large amount of debt. I mean, if there's any downturn in the business at all, there's just not much room to go anywhere. So I think you're going to see a lot of those types of businesses implode. I mean, there'll be a, there'll certainly be a buyer's market for, um, sort of good businesses that have just had the wrong capital stack put together for the situation. Now, no one knows when that's going to happen though. And that's the issue is if everything, you know, we may be five years in and we're having another podcast and saying, Boy, the last five years have gone great. And like, I mean, things continue to go up into the right. And like, we surely have to be late in the cycle, right? Um, so, you know, since no one knows, I mean, I would say that the, the biggest issue is just going to be the washout that occurs naturally. It doesn't take much of a downturn. If you're levered up, even, you know, four times, if you're levered up and you're, you're, you know, you, dip 20%, I mean, you're out of business. And I think that's one of the things that we think, you know, our strategy doesn't make nearly as much money on the upswing, right? Because we're not levering the equity, but it's way more durable. And, you know, our business, if we have a $10 million free cash flow business that goes down to three, we're still making 3 million bucks a year. It's fine. Right. And we can keep operating. And and by the way, we'll probably be a consolidator of talent. I mean, you know, we joke that we'll be the the mosquitoes of the nudist colony the next time there's a downturn.
0: To understand sort of the macro stuff, is there a Uh, An economist you you swear by, or, or whether it's a Carlo de Perez framework or, or someone else who you really look to understand, or is it, Hey, I'm focused on operating these businesses and we'll let the macro, you know, take care of itself.
1: We, we, we definitely look at the macro just to, to make sure we, we know what's going on. We, you know, we try to be, you know, following along with trends, but everything that we do is so bottoms up, right? We're trying to look at these individual businesses. You know, we've gotten a good, nice, uh, I would say 10 year snapshot now that's, you know, since the last downturn of kind of how does the business perform in a downturn coming out of a downturn? What are the new innovations in the business? So it's much more like, we're going to underwrite a business. I, I can't imagine a business that we would, well, actually, to be honest, we, we, de- we declined a business the other day that, um, was a major supplier to, uh, um, to an electric car manufacturer. I'll keep it very broad. Um, and, you know, they had 70% customer concentration and they're providing a, a mission critical part and the business had just exploded in revenue and profitability. Yeah. Not surprisingly. That is something that, um, we had significant concerns with from a macro perspective and just from a, you know, how the, the customer was being, you know, organized from a capital structure perspective. And it's just not a risk that we felt like we could take. And, um, so that's a good example of something that was sort of more macro-y right. that affected the micro.
0: Totally. You know, one trend we're seeing adventure in is instead of, you know, raising equity, people are sort of, you know, ClearBank, et cetera, sort of introducing these new, uh you know financial instruments where people can you sort of raise money against their marketing spend sort of you know as a loan is that something that you think is uh super interesting going to be much more popular make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a model that's been around in the private equity world for a long time. I mean, this is, you know, kind of new to venture. This has been around for a long time for small and medium-sized businesses. I mean, factoring receivables, which is, you know, sort of very similar, you know, you're taking an asset that's, you know, more of a long-term asset or at least longer term, and you're, you know, front-loading the cash, and then you're taking the, as something comes in, right? So, I mean, this business model has been around for a long time. I think the innovation that's really cool, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of anytime you can... Um, do well financially making an investment and help the ecosystem at the yeah. same time. I mean, this ability to plow more and more dollars back into sort of science-backed data-driven marketing strategies totally makes sense, right? And this is something that if you know that, you know, you can put in a dollar and get out $2 and, you know, the dollar that you're putting in carries, uh, you know, what seemingly would be an onerous uh, interest rate, you don't care because you can churn those dollars so much faster. You can grow the company so much faster. Um, I think that the danger, of course, is if you don't get your math right. Yeah. And I've seen that, uh, up close and personal in a few, uh, uh, investments that we've seen, uh, through the years. And it's not a pretty sight, as you know. And so I think, you know, I would just say is that, that, um, in that case, I mean, I hope the underwriters at whoever it is that's providing the, the debt would, Almost, be, almost be like a VC in the sense of have the expertise that they could say, "Hey, we do think after underwriting your business model and your data that we think that you should do this." As opposed to how much capital can we cram down and somehow sort of take the equity in return? I think that'd be
0: crappy. Totally. Let's talk about your investment uh, thesis uh, at Venture. So you, you know, have seen tens of thousands of of, of companies. What, what are, how do you sort of? you know talk about or, or think of int- internally for what types of companies you're most interested in or what types of sectors or what's the sweet spot for Yeah,
1: that's a great question. So, so we're fairly, um, sector agnostic in the sense that we believe every sector has, um, sweet spots of value. Um, so if you're going to look at like the wine business, right, everyone thinks about, you know, being the winemaker and it's the sexy side of the industry and, you know, you can put your name on it and have, it's a kind of, it's a prestige investment. They're, they're really terrible businesses. Like, like as a whole, I mean, you're, of course, you're going to find outliers, um, that, uh, that, that have succeeded, but in general, um, what's the, what's the thing, you know, how do you, how do you make a small fortune in the wine business to start? With a large fortune, right? Um, and so, you know, what you would look in the wine industry and say, okay, we're not just going to touch the wine industry. It's just a terrible industry from an investment perspective. It tastes delicious, for investing wise. Um, but look, as you go down the stack, I mean, who are the people that you know that, that make the foil that go on the bottles? Who are the people that make the bottles? Who are the people that make the corks? Who are the people that transport the wine? That store the wine? That you know, wholesale the wine? That you know, all these different aspects of any industry where I think it's it's dangerous to look at you know, sort of a a, a sector and just write it off completely, right? Um, So what I would say is that that we're really, um, we try to be bottoms up in in how we approach things. We're trying to look for those unusual niches within the industries that maybe are overlooked or seem odd. um, Or just there's something unusual about the business that that is different than maybe the just commodity on the surface. And so um, that's kind of the tie that binds. I mean, we've got uh, businesses in the the pool industry, um, uh, military recruitment, um, uh, matchmaking is another investment that that we've made recently, which we feel um, great about. About, uh, super excited about uh, aeros- as in dating As in, wait, not dating. It's matchmaking. There's a big difference there. And I, I want to correct you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, yes, in the like dating, matchmaking that side. Um, uh, aerospace, um, uh, glass and glazing. I mean, it's it really spans the, the um, spans the industries. I, I would say there's certain things that we like more than others. So for us, we like to see things that are going to be around for a very long time, right? So we always have a kind of a broad thesis that um, that we go with, and I mean. Glass and glazing being a good example, like glass has been used and increasingly used as a building material. I don't see glass being used less. I see it being used more. Right. And so we like to get into things where we think that sort of organic demand for what they're going to have is going to be up in the future and that they're going to be able to play a critical role. And any innovation that's going to occur in that industry, we want to get ourselves in a position to be able to sort of maybe not be the bleeding leading edge of that, but, but being, you know, really close followers and watching it closely kind of what develops out of that. So for instance, in the, in the, in the pool business, we were one of the first people. In fact, I think we were probably the first group in the country to uh, introduce uh, 3D Pool view, so you could actually put on 3D goggles and like walk around your backyard and like, hey, what steaks do you want on the grill? Yeah. Like, what colors your dog? Like that type of thing that you can have, um, which really gives people a visual experience of what their backyard's gonna look like. Um, so those are examples. I mean, it's a blue, very blue collar business, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're shooting shooting holes in the ground with concrete,
0: right? And what's the financial lens you look on every? Is there like, hey, this needs to be you know XX or like we need to believe we can get this kind of return on each? Or how do you sort of? Yeah, I mean, certainly we have uh, financial hurdles that that
1: we have, and those are kind of always shifting, shifting around. I mean, in general, um, you know, we want to look at what's the historical growth of the company, and then what do we think we can do with it. Yeah. And, um, and 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 you can always, <laughs> if you want to destabilize the companies, you can always do more with them, right? Um, what we typically like to do is we like to partner with the people that are in the companies, and we're you know we don't like to you know bring in you know sort of the 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 squad to come in and descend upon the company. I mean, we try to you know be Kind and generous, and yeah. sort of very collaborative with how that works. And at the same time, I mean, like I said earlier, we the primary role is to serve them. Yeah. And if we serve them well, they'll serve us well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would say that th- those are kind of the lenses we look through. And and uh, it's always different on in every investment, though. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> you have investments that um, have a lot more upside, yeah. and um, you know, sometimes that comes with a lot more downside as well. And so, we're always trying to calibrate kind of what's the risk adjusted return that we're you know that we're right. expecting.
0: Yeah. The pool you mentioned a bunch of industries. I'm curious, you, earlier before that, you mentioned sort of niches that were overlooked. What are a couple examples of, of industries where you felt a certain niche was overlooked and maybe you made investment in there or maybe you just looked at it a lot that, hey, there's something interesting there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I would say, um, to, to use selective search, which is our investment in the, in the matchmaking space. Um, so, you know, I've long been interested in sort of how has, um, the flow of information, obviously apps, you know, internet to apps, uh, you know, kind of how has that shifted and altered the, the dating, you know, marriage world, right? And so if you kind of think about it in terms of the stack, you have, you know, um, uh kind of the tenders and more mass you know at the very bottom right exactly. which are either free or very cheap and then you have you know the highest end matchmaking firms in the world which uh selective searches I think far and away the highest end in the United States, uh, North America, um, at the very top. And so, you know, what do you get with them versus what do you get with a tender, right? Well, with them, it's an executive recruitment model. So you're getting a team of five people. They have a proprietary database. They're putting you through like personality testing. They're then, uh, identifying candidates based on, you know, whatever you're, um, whatever you think is important. And they're really trying to help you vet what you say is important versus what's actually important. Is the conversation
0: outcome based?
1: Uh, the, the, the conversation is not outcome-based, and that's for very good reason, right? They're excellent at what they do. They have an 87% um, success rate, which means 87% of the time that somebody signs up for a, a single contract, um, they end up with in a long-term committed monogamous relationship, right? Which is an astounding success rate, right? Um, I think 34% of the time, the first introduction they make is the one. I mean, again, that's just unbelievable. For, for people that have um, gone through, I mean, one of my buddies... I would say hundreds, if not pushing thousands now of, uh, uh, interactions, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's really becomes attractive. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that's a, a good example of like, when you think about the dating world, you think of it as being oversaturated. I mean, you're having these sort of, uh, niche players now come in, um, but pretty much match group now, you know, controls a huge chunk of it. And you look at that and you say, ah, is that really a, an area we want to play in? But then you look at the highest end, and it's really a misunderstood marketplace. So I mean, it's it's chock full of kitschy, um, uh, less professional type people that are sort of the local matchmakers, right? And they, you know, Millionaire Matchmaker was a TV show, right? Hitch, like if you think about it from a movie. Uh-huh. And so these are the things that whenever we first saw the the opportunity, I mean, these are the prejudices I brought to the table. And then we met this incredible team that was super serious about what they were doing. It was not a hustle. It was. It's incredibly professional, right? Um, they're all very well educated, they know exactly what they're doing, and they're taking a a very tried and true model, which is the executive recruitment um process and applying that towards finding love. And so that's an example of something where I would initially, even when I first saw it, um, I was like, ah, no, there's no way, right? And then you more you dig into it, you're like, that's a really interesting niche. And now we have this ability to kind of create cascading product lines down where you know the 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 top product starts at at $25,000 right which sounds outrageously high right until you realize really all the things you're getting and it gets a lot cheaper and you think about also is like to find the I mean for health and wellness and like sort of longevity and quality of life like finding a a, somebody to share your life with is like the most important driver of all those things right so to spend $25,000 in the grand scheme of things on that didn't start to look cheaper. But now we know that that's not affordable for everyone. So then you start cascading down alternate products, right? And I think that's something that we want to do over time um, while keeping that you know sort of same level of um, of service up. And so, yeah, it's just an example of like, I learned so much, continue to learn so much. And uh, gosh, I have a great job. It's so yeah, much fun.
0: Totally. So you mentioned you want to work with leadership for the long term, but how do you think about succession generally? And how do you advise leadership teams to think about succession?
1: Yeah, well, so, um, it, it's just, it's a fact of life, right? We, we're, we're not, uh, immortal. Um, and so, um, we always have backup plans and sort of backup plans to backup plans. We, we consider succession planning it to be a, a critical piece of any business. And unfortunately, we had to, um, kick that into high gear in this last year. We had, um, um, TEPCO, which is one of our portfolio companies, the classic lazy business, uh, headquartered at Dallas with Oklahoma City and Las Vegas offices. Um, Bill Keen, who's just a, a delightful guy. Um, he, he was the majority owner when we bought the business and, um, he got diagnosed with terrible illness and we lost him this year and it was really, really hard. I mean, I still, I, I was actually... T- telling uh, one of my colleagues today I like miss hearing his voice right and um the business has thrived despite it and I think it's a testament to um planning ahead I think it's a testament to his leadership that he was able to identify just really talented people who are now leading the leading the organization and just doing a phenomenal job I mean um and I think that you know oftentimes we Look, we're all people, right? And we want to feel special. We want to feel important. And I think that oftentimes clouds our judgment on how we think about succession planning. You know, if you feel like you're not necessary, right? Like you've done all this work to make yourself not necessary, then somehow you feel devalued. And I would say we encourage people to feel the exact opposite, right? If you could somehow get hit by a bus and, you know, the the company doesn't, you know, it doesn't miss a beat, right? Like, what a testament to your planning and, and how thoughtful you were. And it should be, you know, edifying and not
0: something that makes you lose confidence. Totally. And I'm, I'm curious for the, for the deals that, that you almost invest in. I'm curious, what are the characteristics of, uh, of those companies that you almost, but, but can't get there for, for whatever reason? For example, in venture, it's, Hey, we think it's a awesome technology, but it's too early for the consumer or, or, or we just don't think the market is big enough to, to, you know, receive venture, venture returns, or we think the founder is likely to sell early or something like, are some examples for us. What, what do you think of private equity or some examples where you're, you know, eager about it, almost going to pull the trigger, but you just can't get past this one thing.
1: Yeah, well, for, so for us, we, we have a, um, kind of a very different set of challenges than you all have. I mean, we, we have history on the firm and, and these are profitable companies that are successful and there's meat to them. And, and so, um, a lot of the things you just talked about, I mean, we, we're, we're taking the executional risk in that way kind of off the table. Um, the, the biggest issue is people. It always comes down to people and we try to, um, get to know people, um, in a way that I think is, uh, maybe unusual for the private equity business. I mean, you know, we don't look at these as just being transactions. I mean, if we're going to be involved in these companies for 10, 15, 20 years. These people become our family. And I mean, uh, we want to treat them well. We want to treat them as family. Um, but it's really hard to like sort of have a shotgun wedding. Um, and this is where, you know, we just don't do well in, I would call traditional M&A processes where it's like, okay, you, um, maybe get one management call and then you submit your offer and then you get a three hour scripted site visit and then you're supposed to like go under LOI and close in 60 days, right? For us, we're like, where do we get to know the people and like get to dine with them and get to know their families and we have them to Columbia and we go to wherever they are, you know, that type of thing. And, um, it's just really hard in a traditional process. And so oftentimes what we like to do is, is take things more slowly. Um, I mean, we certainly have, Moved quickly on certain opportunities, but just really spend the time and get to know the people. The numbers are what they are. Um, I don't think there's any, you know, <laughs> the trajectory is, is very well known, right? And so the question is, you know, post close is, you know, how are these people going to be work with? We all have nutty stuff, right? We all believe crazy things. We all have uh, picadillos and weird things about our personalities, how we like to work, how we communicate, uh, what sets us off. Um, and so, you know, it's much better to know those things before you get into a, you know, a very deep relationship um, than just being kind of going in blindfolded eyes closed and saying you know i don't know we'll, we'll figure it out right and so yeah i think that uh so post close the way traditional private equity deals with this is they just kind of wholesale replace leadership and they put their own people in so it doesn't really matter to get to know
0: them you know for us since we are going to be partnering
1: with leadership we have to get to
0: know them yeah and do you think that or do you have any sort of non-obvious insights on on ways on how you quickly get to know people or like sort of a, a subconscious maybe checklist of, of things that you're looking for when, when evaluating, Hey, is this the team we want to partner for 15 years? Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, so it's really hard to look at somebody's actions. I mean, I, I think we, you can look
1: at the same action or the, the same result and, and it can mean very different things. And so what we're looking for is consistency between what they say and how they behave. And, um, you know, that sounds like very um, Sherlock Holmes of us, right? It's not, it's just having conversations with somebody. And, you know, so often in the business world, we tell each other what we think the other person wants to hear. And and that's just not the way to build a relationship. And so, you know, many times when we first get to know somebody, they're nervous um, or maybe a little nervous. Um, we say stupid stuff or they say stuff that they don't believe. And you try to get to the bottom of sort of what do they really believe? How do they make decisions? And, and how does that impact everything from their personal life to the to their work life? Um, how, how have people blossomed underneath them or not? Um, are they more command and control? Are they more decentralized in their decision making? And by the way, anything can work. Right? I mean, there, there are very few attributes. I mean, we've, uh, we've bought businesses from people that have really fancy cars and, and houses and live a very high lifestyle. And we've bought, you know, very, very, um, sort of blue collar, business from blue, very blue collar and, and sort of have no interest in those things. Being one or the other doesn't make you, quote unquote, better, right? Doesn't make you a better fit. It's just being true to who you are and sort of the predictability. It's almost like you're, you're building a brand, right? Which is just like sort of the range of, the predictable range of outcomes, right? That you could expect. Um, you want to deal with that personal brand. What, what, like when, when we call up somebody, what are we going to talk about? What are, what are they, uh, what are they going to focus on that doesn't really, we all do this, by the way. <laughs> what really doesn't matter? And then what are the things that they're not going to focus on that really do matter? And, you know, sometimes you're going to be pushing people and pulling people and, and other times uh, you're just really uh, there to listen to them and, 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 and help them in, uh, in, in being emotional support. I mean, we all, like, again, we're all human. And I think in business, so oftentimes we try to strip that away
0: and it's just dumb, right? I mean, like what, embrace people or people. Totally. And how do you, you know, in, in venture right now, there's this big sort of debate of you know, what is a tech company? What isn't a tech company? How should we, you know, we work where we're sitting, um, obviously is in the news. How, how, how I'm curious, how do you guys think about tech innovation? How how important tech these businesses are as relates to technology and being technology enabled versus business model innovation or, or how do you guys think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so for us, the, the, the business model innovation is probably even less so than I would say in the, in the tech world. Um, I mean, the business model is very straightforward, right? In our glass and glazing business, like, we make glass for, uh, skyscrapers and, and stadiums, and, um, you know, we have a certain cost to it and we sell it and install it, right? And, and so, um, there's not a lot of it. It's not like we're going to go to them and be like, we would like to put you on a recurring revenue plan for your glass, but if you don't pay us, we're going to, pull the glass off your building and like, you know, repo it or something like that. Right. There's certain business models that, that work, you know, in, in different situations. I would say for us though, there's always these amazing opportunities to get better at basically every area of the business, right? Whether it's warehouse management or how do you organize a manufacturing facility? um, How do you communicate better? I mean, a lot of these are just soft skills. Um, I mean, as, as dumb as it is, like how quickly do we call back customers? Yeah. I mean, that alone right there could be a major source of return over time is just coming in and saying, look, instead of calling them back over a three or four day period, why don't we call them back within an hour? Right? That sounds like a radical shift, but you know, people pay attention to stuff like that. So there's a lot of these like, you know, joking ahead of time, we call it like the table stakes of business hygiene, right? That sort of like in marketing and advertising, in sales, in technology, in operations, in finance and accounting, kind of what are the things that every business should be doing sort of at a minimum to compete in the marketplace. And the interesting part is I've never seen any smaller company that does all of them. Well, even come close to doing them all. Well, right. I mean, we have this phrase, small businesses don't say small on purpose. There's a reason why they're small. And I think that's where, um, you know, we try ahead of time to understand sort of what are the lids on the businesses and where can we, you know, maybe be, uh, help or assist. I mean, oftentimes it sounds like there's some, like, grand strategy. And I think this is where it's much more mundane than that. It's more of, like, how can we help get them in a position to maybe think about how to scale themselves, create more time, more headspace to be able to pursue things that seem obvious They've thought of them too. It's not like, we, I mean, very, very rarely do we come into a company and say, have you thought about X? And they're like, we have never thought about that. And it's going to unlock any all this value. I mean, oftentimes they're like, yeah, we talk about that all the time. Who's going to do that? Right? And so then the, then the question is not, okay, great. We all agree on the strategy. Yeah. Now how do we execute? Well, it's hiring the right people. Well, how do you find the right people? What talent networks do you have access to? Yeah. Um, who wants to go work in that type of business? And I think this is where small businesses just unfortunately have this really Bad selection bias, right? Part of its perception, part of its reality, that if you really know what you're doing, let's say you're just I'm mean, just gonna you know pick a pick an area of discipline uh, marketing and advertising. If you really know what you're doing in marketing and advertising, are you gonna work for a local plumber? Of course not, right? You're gonna be working at a major company, you're gonna be working at much larger If you if you're a consultant, right? Do you work, all things being equal, do you work for smaller companies for less pay or larger companies for more pay? All of this is just about how do you create more value all around within the ecosystem as yeah. opposed to
0: being extractive and trying to take as much can out of it. Right. I'm curious to get into the bottlenecks that these company companies face. It, so talent is the biggest one, would you say? Yeah, I would say talent. I mean, talent is
1: by far the biggest one. Um, I mean, financing, uh, having access to capital, I would say, is right up there. Um, mostly access is maybe the wrong word. It's how do you package the company in a way that gets you access? I mean, oftentimes we'll come in and there's just an aversion to using even a line of credit, right? You know, we're not even talking about like senior debt or mez debt. I mean, they were, th- that's, like, that's like way advanced compared to where they are. And in private equity, by the way, would call that kind of child's play, right? I mean, we're talking about people who just feel like it's a personal front to their manhood to pull on a line of credit. I mean, these are conversations we have, right? And I think, you know, we can sit here and laugh at that and say, oh gosh, that doesn't make any sense. But for them, like if you have to pull on a line of credit, it means you're not doing well. It means like you failed. So there's an association with sort of, um, an ability to finance your company as sort of tied to your identity. And so oftentimes we'll come in and say, well, look, if if we want to you know grow the company double and we have a working capital needs, that means that our working capital needs are going to double. Like how do we fund that? There's nothing wrong with using a line of credit to fund that. Now, if you're losing using a line of credit to fund losses, yeah, you're in trouble, right? Those are two radically different things that I don't think Most small business owners understand how that works. And when you go to a bank and banks going to give you what you ask for, right? So we'll oftentimes come in and they have like some super high interest rate. Uh, if they have a line of credit or, or maybe a little bit of like equipment debt or something, the terms are crazy. There's, you know, all kinds of guarantees on it. I mean, and we come in and we're like, no, what are you doing? They're like, oh, do you not want that? And we say, no, give us market standard terms. And they're like, okay. And literally the, you know, the, the sellers and the people we're partnered with now are like amazed. And it's like, that's just, just because you know, right? It's just access. But I say access to talent, um, is certainly the thing. How do you, how do you, how do you help that there? Yeah. So we, uh, we created something called the Orbit, um, which we have, I think, a little over 750 people now in Orbit. Um, we're actually hosting an Orbit, uh, event and kind of a scout event, which is another, uh, thing, uh, later this afternoon. And, uh, so we try to, you know, host these events. And all it is, is when you join Orbit, you, you basically raise your hand and say, I'm interested in working, you know, with adventures in one of the portfolio companies. We have people who are, you know, Recent MBA grads, recent college grads, all the way up to like CEO candidates, almost like people that are retired that want to you know uh, help more on board of directors, and so we have this um, you know incredible group of people that you know we keep quote unquote in orbit, and when the time is right, um, we say, hey, have you here's an opportunity. What do you think? And so we put everything from accounting positions. We actually just filled the CEO role um, at one of our companies through the orbit. Um, so it's a really, it's a great group. And, and um, yeah, we try to treat them as family. Like again, the kind of an extension of the firm. Totally. And you wrote a book called messy marketing. Yeah, the messy marketplace. The messy marketplace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it could be called messy marketing. That, <laughs> that's actually a good, a better name for it.
0: Let's plug that a little bit. Talk about what what you were trying to do by by why you wrote the book and and what you hope people <laughs> take from it.
1: Yeah. Well. So so one, uh, I feel like uh, it. Anybody who's under the age of forty and writes a book is kind of a fraud in some ways. And and I'm I'm 36, so I, I'm, I'm gonna put myself in that category. We uh we wrote a book because we couldn't find the book that we wanted to give people that was out there. And so um the last thing in the world we wanted to do um in the last uh couple of years was you know take the time to write a book. Um but we wanted to give something, we think about content as a way to scale conversations. And so we wanted to give people something where we could, you know, as a seller or the helper of a seller, so you know. Uh, the CPA, the lawyer, the wealth advisor, maybe even family member, right? Um, something where they could understand the process of how do you sell a company? Like, what does it mean to sell? How do you prepare to sell? Um, what's the process look like? What happens after you you close? Um, who are the actors involved? Uh, what are their incentives? All these things. And so we were kind of having the same conversations with sellers when they would contact us because we have a lot of people who don't go through an intermediary. Who you just you know reach out through the website. Um, we had one guy say he had gone on our website like I think ten or. 15 times over six months and finally drank enough bourbon to get up the courage to, you know, click enter. Um, so, uh, we try not to be that uh, intimidating, but we have a lot of people who come directly to us and we try to help them through the process. And, and and we found ourselves having the same conversations over and over. And so we said, gosh, wouldn't it be better if instead we could send them a book? And so we did a kind of a survey of all the M and a books that are out there. Um, and there were some very good ones for buyers. In fact, there's a Harvard, uh, the Harvard guys, uh, that, that run the search fund class at Harvard have a great book on, uh, on the, on the buy side, um, I think it's called buying a small business or something like that. And so, but really on the sell side, there just wasn't a, most of the books that were out there were kind of a very heavy business card that yeah. the logical conclusion was hire us. Right. And so, you know, adventures is mentioned, I think once, maybe twice in the book, it's not about adventures. It is literally a resource that we use every day to be able to hand to people and say, this is what it's like to sell your company. This is what you need to be prepared for. And there's a lot of preparation.
0: Right. And one of the things that I heard about you is that among other things, one of your superpowers is, is understanding and advising people on negotiations and and deal making. And so what do you think you sort of uniquely, you know, appreciate about, uh, you know, negotiations or, or perhaps other people undervalue or overvalue
1: yeah, I mean, I would say I've changed a lot in this. Um, I think, you know, in my, in my younger years, uh, when I was first getting going, I, I looked at negotiation as very much a zero sum game of how do you get the most and sort of almost, uh, trick the other person into giving up things that they shouldn't give up. I quickly realized that's a really unsustainable way to go about business and it just doesn't feel very good for either party. And so I would say, you know, now the, the thing that I focus on is how do you take different circumstances, different interests and align them through a deal structure somehow to where it creates a win-win for both parties. So where, you know, anytime you, you, you turn around, let's say five years down the road, um, objectively is going to look like somebody got a better deal, right? I think that's a really poor way to look at it. If in the beginning, two, you know, mutually consenting adults say, Hey, looking at the circumstances every, you know, there's not a big information advantage. You're not trying to, you know, pin people down or, you know, there's not a forced seller situation, right? But it's really two parties coming together and saying, we, we believe there's more value to be created. Like a lot of people, the, the money that, that they're, um, getting at close is life changing. I mean, this is, uh, you know, sort of, all all things be equal i mean this is money that is forever money right the way they kind of think about it and so could they continue to run their business and over you know 5 7 years generate more free cash flow if they'd stayed in it yeah people are tired they want to spend time with their grandkids they want to be you know they want to pursue uh, other activities and and they want to take chips off the table just de-risk it in general and so i think those are the situations where it feels very um Gosh, I don't know. It, it just feels great to be able to create something where everyone comes together and can celebrate it, right? I was just thinking about the, 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 the woman who sold us the business, uh, the aerospace businesses in Los Angeles, uh, last month. And we had this delightful, like, lunch on the patio and, and we were just celebratory, like, It was great. There wasn't any animosity. It was just a fantastic and it had been a hard process. Like it was 14 months. It was hard, right? So don't, don't, like don't, don't mistake, um, celebrating for, for being easy. It was just one of those situations where she was so grateful and I was so grateful and like we were both better off because of it. And, and honestly, beyond us, everyone was better off for it, right? Like she wanted to bring in somebody to help modernize, um, the company and, I think we can do that, right? And so hopefully it's about creating more value. And anytime I advise people, you know, it's all friends that say, Hey, you do a lot of negotiating. Like, will you help me? And it very feel, it very much feels like they're in that mode of like, well, if I did this power move on them and they could get this. And I say, no, 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 don't, don't like life's not a one time game, right? Like the world's actually very small in many, many ways. And I think the best thing you can do is just treat people really, really well and try to be kind
0: and generous. Yeah. And is it similar to, How startups should think about M&A or do you think your type of M&A is very different than how startups should think about it with big tech companies?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's not my world. So, I mean, I I think that when you get into uh, large corporate M&A, um, I think the rules change in some ways, but I also like, I mean, those people go to work at those companies, and they're gonna. Um, I don't think you should be a pushover. I don't think you. I mean, it's not. No one's gonna respect the the sort of the patsy at the poker table, right? But at the same time, I think that um, being deceptive or being uh, like mean spirited, it it never pays off. You actually you don't ever win as a result of doing that. So, I mean, I would say, um, and, and also. <laughs> You should tolerate a lot from the other side because look negotiations are stressful. Yeah. This is one of the things you know we talk about a lot as a team at adventures is you know our our job is to give people the benefit of the doubt and to not react emotionally to what even if they're reacting emotionally yeah. right there's no value in in getting hot headed about things now do we do this perfectly absolutely not have I lost my temper? absolutely. Right. So I'm sure there's plenty of people that are listening to this and like rolling their eyes that have dealt with me, but at the end of the day, uh, it's never helpful. And I'm never proud of myself when that happens. And I think that's one thing I would advise too, is just, you know, the numbers are what they are. If they're attractive, if the package is a win-win do it, if it's not, don't. And there's some great people at at some of the big tech companies. There's also some really crappy people at the big tech companies. It's almost like life is messy and there's a huge spectrum of types of people, right? Right. Be on one
0: side, not the other. Back to evaluating uh, companies for a second. Are there certain industries that you have not made bets in yet, or uh, a bet, but you're really excited about or curious or i've looked into
1: yeah yeah I, I i've said this in the past too it's like the home services area for me if you look at home and office services um it is highly fragmented it's got low net promoter score like yeah. low customer satisfaction right and it, it, it just it, as far as professionalism goes it's just one of the like lowest professionalism industries i think it can be easily i should say easily it could be very valuably tech enabled gosh, we would love to get in. And, and, and by the way, we're kind of indifferent. It could be pest control. It could be HVAC. It could be on the plumbing side. It could be on the, um, gosh, energy efficiency side. I mean, there's so many different ways to like service a home in an office. We just don't have a wedge in right now. Right. right. And we've, we've probably looked at, I mean, literally no joke. We've probably looked at six or 700 home wow. services businesses and the issue is that most of them are tied to new construction, um, so there's very few pure kind of services driven. And if you're a construction firm and doing services, you're usually going to be construction heavy with like kind of a light services component. And that's not necessarily the business we want to be in, right? Um, and so we're looking for that kind of that right team, the right mix, enough of a stable base that we can we can use that to be more acquisitive in the future. We just haven't found it yet. And and I think that's something that um, hopefully, I mean, gosh, I, I've been talking about it long enough, surely enough, somehow it'll manifest, but I'm not quite sure how.
0: Have you looked at uh, laundromat businesses before?
1: Yeah. So laundromats um, are, are kind of this interesting category of what I would call as heavy asset-based, real estate-based investment. So I always get kind of laundromats, um, car washes. There's, there's, you know, convenience stores are kind of all in that same spectrum. And, and I think that most of the time, it's funny because real estate investors get into those and they're like, oh my gosh, they're such a headache. They're so operational. And like the operations of a laundromat compared to the operations of really any normal operating business is like nothing so it's kind of all what you're used to right um it's all relative yep. um for us we think that there's a lot more people that can buy laundromats and car washes and convenience stores than can buy highly operational companies yep. and so um yeah you know, i always joke that you know if your dentist can buy it we probably don't want to um and so that's typically what we've seen in the past um we're not going to buy things better than i mean there are people who roll up you know, laundromats, roll up car washes, roll up uh, convenience stores, bundle them together, kind of sell them to REITs and, you know, that type of industry. We typically like to shy away from those. I'd say where real estate-type businesses get interesting kind of in the middle is... You know, like restaurant chains, yeah. right? Or franchisors, things like that, which are heavy, heavy sort of physical retailers would be another one. Heavy, fez, you know, physical retail presence or physical footprint, but they're fundamentally an operating business that's enabled through that footprint. And so there's always just kind of a spectrum. You know, we probably shy more away from those. You asked, you know, before what we like, what we don't like. I mean, I would say we kind of shy more away from real estate, um, as one of our rules, but I mean, we're open to it. We, we, we evaluate one of the largest, um, uh, steakhouse chains in the south recently and you know to their credit was pretty good margins and they were doing a good job and they they'd created kind of like a you know kind of a mini mortons type type chain um so we'll look at stuff like that but um we haven't obviously pulled the trigger on anything like that
0: do, do you have a certain framework around margins or or how they should evolve over time or other key sort of business fundamentals that if they aren't there hey unlike like unlikely to
1: Yeah. So I feel like all these are, um, all these can mean different things and that they're all just a single piece of the puzzle. And so if you look at like, I'll use kind of margins and I'll use capital expenditures, the capital intensity of the business is kind of being two barometers. If you look at a high margin, low capital intensity type business, you're typically going to attract massive competition. I mean, there's no way you can hold high margins and low capital intensity sort of in perpetuity unless you find, somehow find, um, a niche where you can kind of protect the niche and, you know, it's not going to grow much, but you know, it's going to, going to be what it is. And so you kind of look at that and you say, okay, well, of course we would prefer higher margins yeah. than lower margins. We also want to know where in the economic cycle margins go because it, there are some businesses that have basically steady margins through full cycle. There's other businesses that, I mean, their margins will literally triple up cycle because you just can't get access to the thing that they're doing. But in, in, in down markets, they'll like, they have no choice but to lose money to survive. Um, those are obviously going to be treated very differently. So it's, it, you know, you can't look at one snapshot in time and look at margins and kind of make a deduction based on that or have a hard rule similar to capex. I mean, capex, um, capital expenditures, what, you know, equipment you're buying, how you're expanding maybe a physical footprint or whatever it be. Those things can be, you know, Very, very nice returns on lots of capital sometimes. Um, or they can set yourself up if you, you know, look at only a snapshot for a huge fall. If you've got a big asset base and then you're, you know, sort of a big capacity and then your demand falls off, I mean, they can just suck cash, right? And so, sort of, the higher the capital expenditures typically, the higher the risk. You also have to look at what you're actually buying. So, if you're buying very liquid equipment, stuff that you could easily buy and sell, like if, you know, let's say a fleet of trucks, right? That's a different type of capital intensity than we're going to put six million dollars into a plant where if we don't use it, no one could use it. So, you know, all these things, again, what you're trying to do is you got a a puzzle in front of you. You're trying to figure out, okay, where do you sit in the hierarchy of the industry? Where are you protected? Where are you vulnerable? Uh, Who wants to compete against you? How quickly can they compete against you? How much capital would it take to compete against you? And if you feel pretty insecure that somebody could come along and just spend more money and do what you do, It's pretty dangerous to get into that business. There needs to be something unusual about the business. Again, moat, competitive advantage, whatever that you want to call it, um, that keeps the business insulated from that competition.
0: Yeah. And so in venture, we're starting to see, you know, companies, especially with SoftBank, that are trying to use basically capital as a moat. And then of course, you know, there's traditional data moats. There's sort of questions as to whether how sustainable brands are as a moat. How do you view moats that, that excite you or moats that don't excite you in terms of long-term defensibility? And how do you think about relative to others?
1: Yeah, well, ironically, I mean, obviously we're at a soft bank, uh, now owned company, I think, uh, uh, here at WeWork. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, and this is nothing new, but you can mask. A suspect business model with a lot of capital, and then sometimes you, you should use a ton of capital to um, to hit the J curve, right? Um, I think the same thing kind of happens in private equity sometimes, where you know you get this idea of like <laughs> it cracks me up every time I hear somebody saying like, "Have you ever thought about rolling up fill in the blank?" Right? It's like, well, yeah. If you take a bunch of small things and then you slam them together, like it sounds really sexy. Like, think about all the synergies we could create. The problem is, you take a bunch of like small crappy businesses and you slam them together, and now you've got a really, really crappy big business, which is, you know, bailing a wire and duct tape together. Um, now you could, you could spend a bunch of capital to roll it up. You could create this layer of, you know, sort of uh, management above, you know, have, have all these training programs. And some people have done this moderately successful. I mean, some have done it quite well at it. Um, it's just really, really hard to do. And it's, you know, a, a lot more things uh, work in theory than in practice. Yeah. And so we're just very skeptical of things that if it hasn't been done in the past, if, it, if you don't have a sort of a track record of doing it, um, you know, the, the joke is every projection like changes up into the right as soon as we buy the company, and all that changed was the ownership. And we're like, what? wait a minute, if that's the case, then why don't you just keep it? And They're like, oh, because you'll do so much better with it, right? Like, no, we're not. No, we're not. There's no way.
0: Totally. And and you mentioned the different elements of of uh, where you help companies marketing, sales, uh, you know, finance and accounting. Let's name maybe a couple of the most. Of most common or, or perhaps non-obvious mistakes that you see leadership teams make that you make sure to help you know talent was one not mistake but you know resource that, that a lot of girl companies don't have what are either mistakes or things that you help companies do a little bit differently or better as it relates to marketing sales or
1: yeah i mean I would, I would say that there's kind of two two buckets one is um giving yourself margin to um think about how to work on the business and not only in the business and this is just something look yeah, I joke that that operating a business is a daily knife fight. In fact, we we called uh, the the weekly newsletter we sent out the knife fight um, until we got enough people who told us that that makes them feel um, anxious, and uh, and then we of course we changed the name, and then we had a whole bunch of other people who said that was the perfect name, and we shouldn't have changed it. But anyway, um, and so I would say that one category is just getting yourself up out of the weeds, thinking strategically. And this sounds far sexier than it really is. Thinking strategically is just like. What is the logical things we should be doing? But we're so running so hard and in so many different directions that we just haven't thought about doing, right? Um, and so we're able to have those conversations, certainly provoke them sometimes, but oftentimes just be a sounding board and a, you know, a thought partner to them in, in that way. Um, I do think there are some niche expertise that again, it's just really hard to get access to. So, um, you know, on our staff, we have a a really legitimate technologist, right? Who, who thinks uh, about Systems and how to use technology and 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 build systems. We've got marketing and advertising people. We've got finance and accounting people. Um, We've got people who who are focused on operations. I mean, things that you just don't know what you don't know. And so, oftentimes, we can't help. I mean, let's just put that on the table, right? It's not like we're coming in and like waving the magic wand and all of a sudden every business's problems disappear. Like the problems are still the same, but you know. When it comes to benefits renewals, for instance, like we know what the market for benefits are. So when, you know, their, their local provider who they play golf with comes back with a 33% increase, which by the way happens almost every year at one of our companies, we say, no no, thank you. And here's, by the way, if you're not going to do this, then we have somebody else who will. Like we're bringing in sort of, I guess I would just say in general, like raising opportunity costs and pointing out sort of things that if you had been an expert in that, it would be obvious, but maybe just aren't obvious to somebody who's again, running a hundred miles an hour and doing a tremendous amount. I mean, it is yeoman's work that these people are doing. I don't want to give the impression at all that we're somehow like smart and they're not. And like, that's the exact opposite in many, many ways. They are Incredibly far superior at what they do than we could ever be, yeah. and in fact, like we think, we don't understand. Private equity firms sometimes come into these companies and say, like. Have you thought about redoing all of this thing with your operations? And it's like, these people, you have no idea what you're doing. And these people know what they're doing. And they've been doing it for 30, 40 years. Like, how in the world are we going to come in and help them make glass better or recruit people for the military better, right? Or do any of that? Like, there's no way. Now, what we can come in and say is, hey, you're really good at this. There's this kind of meta layer. Like, I call it the everything tastes like chicken layer, right? to business where... It's the business of business yeah. um, that many people who are technically excellent at what they do just haven't been exposed or don't have the access to talent or just are too busy to even focus on it. That's where we can come in and offer some expertise and help.
0: Totally. And, you know, I started this uh, podcast by asking you sort of what has thread your career, what's sort of the underlying thread of your career to date? I'm curious, looking forward, we will ask this is, uh, what do you want sort of the unique contributions page of your Wikipedia uh, <laughs> page to to say you know three decades from now or something in terms of
1: yeah well uh so no one's going to know my name in 100 years i'm okay with that um but uh in, in terms of legacy i mean i i do think there is a better way in pri- uh, in the private equity business to go about transactions than the traditional lbo model um i think there's a much better way of treating people than um, private equity is is used to treating people uh, i think that you know it sounds so fundamental, but just treating people as people, like made in the image of God, like it's, it's, um, we're special, right. And like, we should treat each other as special. And I feel like too often in business, it's, uh, you know, we're numbers or we're, you know, uh, overhead costs. And I mean, I've seen up close and personal what, what it looks like when somebody treats, People not as people, and it's yeah. just not pretty. And so I think that that would be just the thing that, you know, bringing more humanity to the industry. I'm not saying this is not like we're better. Or we're, I mean, we've got, we got plenty of problems. Like I, I can be a. I can be a pain in the ass. So I'm not saying that at all, right? Um, what I am saying though is I think there's a better way and I think that we can, we can serve the families, we can serve the communities better at the companies that we, that we get involved in and that private equity in general could do better by maybe not putting as much debt as you possibly could on a business. And there's plenty of private equity firms who don't do this anyway, but I think that, um, maybe also restructuring how LPs and GPs interact with one another. I mean, we're trying to break new ground in that area and I think we certainly have, have created a, a different Model um, than what's out there
0: because of the holding period or w-
1: well but the holding period as well as the fee structure right so I mean uh, us not taking fees of any kind and no reimbursements of any kind it's highly entrepreneurial right um, so you know for our investors they don't care if it takes us ten years to deploy capital or two years to deploy capital because like they're not paying for it. They don't care what our expenses are they're not paying for it. Right. Um, so we're able to, uh, just do whatever we need to do without any sort of checkoffs and budgeting and all that stuff. So, I mean, I think that, that the combination of those things hopefully creates a, um, more sustainable, uh, better model for how you, uh, partner with businesses. I think partnering is the operative word. It's not, you know, you're not buying them and turning them into, you know, sort of like a, a thing that just purely serves you that you can play with
0: and it's like a play toy, right? Again, these are all people and we should treat them well. Totally. And when is, if, if, if any, if at any time, debt customer friendly?
1: Yeah, well, so I mean, I think you can use debt well if, if you um, see a clear path to expansion, to serving your customers better, um, where y- you believe that it's it's much more of a sure bet. You're not going to put the the company in jeopardy by by using it. Um, and I know in venture it's the same way. There's venture debt for this exact reason. You know, I, I think that's oftentimes not how like transaction debt is typically um, debt in the private equity business. I have no trouble with you know. In fact, in our businesses, like we might. Close on a business with no debt and then say, you know what? We want to do this other acquisition. We think that actually using debt with our current capital structure and where we are makes sense to go and do that acquisition. Well, now we've stronger combined two companies, you know, all that. Or maybe we have a huge customer who comes to us and is like, look, you know, we want to double your revenue next year. You're going to have to gear up. Can you afford to do that? Yeah, we might take on debt to be able to gear up. So I mean, they're there are again, like I said, anything else. There are good reasons to do things and bad reasons to do things. I think too often we get bogged down in just sort of one style of how to do things without sort of zooming out and looking at the larger picture.
0: Totally. The so one thing I read about you is that you uh, were born or sort of grew up an atheist and became a believer over time. Is that accurate? Yep. Yep. Uh, t- talk. Uh, I, I, I'm curious, how did that process happen to you, and how do you, when other people, I'm sure a lot of other people come to you and are expressing similar similar sort of thoughts or longings or sharing, like, what is your sort of thoughts there? Because, you know, while most of the world is religious in some form, not that many people in finance or technology are overtly so.
1: Yeah. Well, so, um, I, uh, first of all, if somebody came to me and, and said, Hey, I, you know, I have these questions, I have these things and people do, do approach me. Um, the first thing I say is I, I, I get it. Like I had, I had those same things. Yeah. I mean, I, um, uh, uh, my, you know, grew up going to, going to church, um, you know, decently regularly. Um, and then just, I, I, I think I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And, um, I can still remember, I, I told my mom that you know, I was like, I don't believe that there's a God. And she was like, Oh, interesting. And my brother starts crying in the backseat. Yeah. is actually a true story. And then, so, you know, you know, I just had all these questions as I was a teenager. I I, I felt like, you know, part of this is, is youthful um, uh, overconfidence in your own uh, thoughts. And, you know, I kind of assumed that, um, you know, if, if I couldn't get the exact answer I wanted exactly when I wanted it from whoever I asked, then that means it must not be true. And so, um, yeah, became uh, what I would say is a pretty hardcore atheist um, in my uh, teens and 20s. And, um, and then I started meeting people who were really thoughtful, um, scientists and, um, philosophers who were religious, who were believers. And I thought, well, that's really weird. Like that's a cognitive dissonance for me. And I started reading about, you know, kind of who they are and what they were doing. I would have conversations with them, and they would challenge me in ways that I just hadn't even thought about. And you know, here I here I thought that I was like the smug, superior, you know, atheist because I was like so smart and it's science and blah blah. And then I started realizing that there's like there's really no conflict between science and and at least I mean I can only speak as a Christian, but in uh, Christianity. And and then I started somebody uh, I think. Start challenging me, uh, I'm trying to remember who exactly in the beginning started challenging me and saying, do you really, um, do you believe what you actually say you believe, right? So if we're just a random co-location of atoms, we're sort of a wet sack of machinery that's, you know, came from nothing is going to go to nothing, right? Like, do you actually live your life that way? So there should be, there's sort of like no inherent beauty, no inherent meaning. Um, you can make your own meaning, but it's just made up, right? And, and, and I started challenging these things. I mean, these are very like, I mean, I, I still even get anxious today, like thinking about, it. and I didn't really believe what I thought I believed. And I hadn't really taken it to the logical conclusion. And what I realized was the Western world is so steeped in Christian values. I mean, where you, where you look, and I know this sounds for a lot of people that, that aren't familiar with Christianity or have sort of seen the headlines and rejected the, what do I say, Hollywood version of Christianity. Everywhere Christian's gone, like, human rights have flourished right? At at every stage of the way, even an eye for an eye, I remember I I had this thing where I was like, well, an eye for an eye is so barbaric, right? Well, an eye for an eye was a massive step up in justice. At the time, anybody could be killed for anything. If you were in the upper class, you could just like walk down the street and murder people and there was no recourse. There was nothing wrong with that, right? What an eye for an eye said was, no, no, every human is treated as the image of God, right? Right. And and you can't, the only thing you can do is retribution for that thing. Now, obviously, Changed since then, Jesus came along and, and and had some things to say about that. But every step of the way it was an improvement on justice. And so anyway, I um I I I just went through this incredible um sort of exploration where I studied the heck out of it and I went through and the biggest the biggest linchpin for me was uh, is Jesus real is he who he says he was and I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he was I mean you got to do something with Jesus is ultimately what I'd say um, either he was a, a a madman or a liar uh a, you know a lunatic really or he was who he says he was and so you got to do something with him He can't be like this just good moral teacher right. and so I think all those things came together um, and um, and ultimately um uh, I became a believer and it. it's been, uh, transformative in my own life. Um, it's just been, it's been a, just a wonderful
0: experience. It's interesting. I had this, uh, this Girardian scholar, David Gornaski, on the, on the podcast and he talked about sort of the irony of even the, the new atheist movement who sort of, you know, shun religion in some sense and yet preach, you know, progress and equality and sort of liberalism, how much that is directly inspired by, uh, or indirectly inspired by, by Christianity, even if they don't want to admit it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the question is, is, if- where do we get our moral beliefs? Where is this inherent like secular humanism that uh, all people are created equal and that everyone should have flourishing? I mean, like, there's nothing like nature. If we just want to say it is like we're you know in a state of nature and you know it's sort of raw, like yeah. it's survival of the fittest, right? So like, there's nothing altruistic about nature. Yeah. I mean, at all. Um, and in fact, if you if you argue, and this is you know sort of a Malthusian argument, and a lot of the like eugenics movement came out of a lot of this line of thinking, is we should actually let the the weak perish. I mean, that is the exact invert of what Christianity teaches, what Jesus taught, right? Which is you should raise up the lowly, you should serve others, right? And I mean, again, a lot of this stuff like in business, I mean, going back to what we just talked about, like I remember the first time I, I, when I fully appreciated that the the God of the universe was also the God of my work and that if I said I believed, I, I can't. I can't sort of be a believer outside the office. I got to be a believer in the office, and it fundamentally changes how you treat people yeah. and, and what uh, you do. But separate from that, like I just don't understand where you get the sort of objective measuring stick. Because I mean, it, you know, I have one atheist uh, friend, and this is highly offensive, and it's his it's his words not mine. But he's like, I have a, a, a preference against murder. There's nothing wrong with it inherently, right? I just have a preference against it. So I don't that's why I don't do it, right? But if it floats your boat, then go out and do what you need to do, right? And I think there's a lot of these things we just don't think about that we that are highly rooted in in Christian ethics and values. Um but there's look, it, it gets controversial when you say stuff like that. And and you know, it, without a relationship, there's no way to have a good conversation. So like I occasionally get get tangled up in Twitter on this, and I try to be as winsome as I possibly can, but there's like really good answers to really hard questions, but you gotta put in the work and and you gotta have a
0: relationship in order to have them. And last question I'll ask, which is which is a hard question that a bunch of people will have about this, is uh, or I'm sure ask you is how do you reconcile uh, science and religion?
1: There's no there's no reconciliation needed at all. It's actually incredible. Um, so the uh, so (laughs) literally Christians created the scientific method. Literally. So, So when I say that, so almost all of the 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 big scientific breakthroughs, right. Um, were done by Christians. Now, an easy argument to make is, well, they were done by white men and white men in the West, and and the West was, you know, at that time, highly Christian and, and sort of uh, societal, uh, cultural Christians. Right? That's not who these people were, though. Their fundamental undergirding of their worldview um, inspired them to explore. A, so, a Creator God that was intentional in design, who wanted to reveal Himself. Like, that is the scientific method. How do you find out what God is, who God is, what he created? That was literally the underpinnings of why they went down that path. These are the same people that created hospitals and universities, like literally the top hospitals and universities, the systems as we know it, were created by these exact same things to help the poor, to help the oppressed, right? And we just take them for granted as like the institutions. I mean, Harvard's handbook, literally Harvard's handbook, then the very first edition says, the purpose of going to Harvard is to know Jesus Christ better. That's literally the purpose in Harvard's handbook. And so I would say is the the apparent conflict between science – I mean science doesn't have anything to say about morality, about love, about beauty. It doesn't have anything to speak on those, right? Uh, great book, When Breath Becomes Air. By the way, don't read it on a plane. I made this mistake and people thought I was having a nervous breakdown because I was like uncontrollably sobbing. Um, but he goes through this exact journey and he's like, I'm a hardcore scientist, I'm a doctor, I think he was a PhD, MD. And he went through this whole journey of he realized that like – there was this whole other world that science couldn't explain. And so it, it, there's no conflict between science and religion. Like the, the God of the universe is the God of science. And like, I don't see any conflict in any way.
0: Yeah. This has been a fascinating conversation. I want to make sure that you're on time for your event. <laughs> uh, my guest today has been Brent Bishore. Brent, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. For for listeners who want to go deeper into into your work and learn more about you, uh, where in the internet might, might you point them?
1: uh yeah so uh, i have to go to adventures so uh adventures with a dot before the es it'll take you there um we're not we're not spanish contrary to what people say it's a hack domain um yeah we have a lot of things on there um and a lot of writings but i would say i'm on twitter at brent B Shore um yeah feel free to contact me anytime um would love to chat
0: it's been a great episode hey thanks thank sir you for coming.
1: really appreciate it, man thank you